Hello, simpletons. What's up, patrons? You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. (laughs) Today, we're talking to Dr. Amishi Ja. She wrote this new book. It's called Peak Mind. Amishi, I want to talk to you about so much. We're going to talk about all these distractions. But first, we have this little segment we start with here called More About Less. We read something, usually an article, or but we have your book here. And so I figured we'd read something from your book. I want to talk to you about distractions equaling disconnection. Mm. So if it's okay with you, would you be willing to read a portion of your book? You you, you haven't done this on anyone else's show, right? I've not. Okay, so this is from page two forty one. And I didn't bring my glasses, so as long as I can read it, I mean, I can can read it out loud. If not, (laughs) you let us know. All right, (laughs) no no worries, no pressure. So this is from page two forty one, called "Distraction Equals Disconnection." Okay, how much would you like me to read the first paragraph? Yeah, I think that's where, where we start, and then we'll talk about some of these signs here. Okay, I think I can read it. All right. Human interactions are nuanced and complex. They can be fun, stress-relieving, entertaining, rewarding, productive. They can also be tense, challenging, adversarial. Every day we have interactions with people we look forward to and ones we may dread. Yet, we have to show up for all of them. And when things go astray with these interactions, it can seem as if the problem is insurmountable or foundational or maybe even just the way people are. Like so many of the other challenges of living, a lot of problems we run into in these interactions come down to something more basic and more fixable. Mm. Or, as we've been discussing throughout the book, trainable. Mm -hmm. Think about a recent challenge you experienced connecting, communicating, or collaborating effectively. I'm willing to bet that distraction, dysregulation, or disconnection were at play. For one of you, or both of you, how does that relate to your attention and working memory? Mm. And then we kind of go on and on about that. <laughs> yeah, and we can talk about that here. So if I, if I go through the chapter, you, you talk about being distracted, being dysregulated, being disconnected. And maybe we, we can just sort of walk through those, what it looks like here. So in the book. So, so she uses the term working memory. Yeah. Can, uh-huh. can we talk about what that is yeah, real quick before we dive into it? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Because that's, I mean, because that's it's such an interesting, yeah, concept. So yeah, I, would you did you want to ask? Yeah, me go for it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I about think working that memory. I what think that, that, mean? that actually the whole time we've been talking about mental clutter, this is what I wanted to say to you all, which is that it actually has to do with this function of working memory, and working memory is what we'd call um, a mental scratch space. I call it the whiteboard of the mind. Mm. And it really functions in that way. It's it's short lived, meaning it's only about up to a minute or so. Uh-huh. It's like the cache in your computer or the RAM in your computer, this sort of rapid access memory that we'd need in order to use information in the moment. So mm. think of the last time you were calculating a tip in your mind or in the middle of a conversation with somebody and you have an idea or a thought that you want to express, but you aren't going to just blurt it out as soon as it pops into your head. You're going to hold it and mm. then insert it in the right moment, right? Mm. right. You don't need to remember, Don't don't think of the term memory so much when we talk about working memory, think of the term working. Mm-hmm. So the whiteboard metaphor is very useful because it's like this specific, peculiar kind of whiteboard. 
working memory's job is to allow you to put all this stuff on the whiteboard and then the ink will just fade away in like about a minute. Uh So if anything's on your whiteboard, it's because you're rewriting it. If it's staying on the whiteboard, you're rewriting it over and over again. Mm. Uh, So if you're neurosing over something, worrying about the same thing, you just, it keeps, it keeps uh, sort of evaporating, but I'm putting it right back up there over and and over. That's a really important thing to remember is that the spark or the energy that keeps an idea, concept, worry, preoccupation in your mind is active and mentally, energetically costly. Mm-hmm. So you are rewriting it over and over again. So so here's the thing, going back to that flashlight, floodlight, juggler stuff, right? So essentially the flashlight and the floodlight both kind of bring stuff into working memory. Whatever it is that uh, uh, captures my attention is now written onto that whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And then the um, and the same thing goes with goals, by the way, when we talk about executive control and the juggler. So mm. all that stuff is on your whiteboard. Now, let's say a text message arrives and you're reading it. That also goes on the whiteboard. That means at some point, this whiteboard is going to be overly cluttered. Mm. So when we talk about mental clutter, think about it as your mental whiteboard. The space is limited and the ink is fast evaporating. Yes. So the way in which you're going to try to solve the experience of overwhelm is going to be thinking about the problem in that manner. Mm. Not that it's there forever. Because like I said, even if you've got a disturbing or um, kind of difficult moment that you've experienced, like me having to do those budgets, not terrible, not life-altering, but annoying, Mm -hmm. the worry that I have, the resistance I have, I'm writing that up too. So I've got budget numbers and budget sheets that I'm working with, and I'm writing up, I hate this. I don't want to do this. This is so boring. And at some point, it's going to take over what's on the white space. Right. So when you want to reduce mental clutter— you want to let things fade away that are not serving you. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. We will often talk about people ask, how do I let go of this thing? Or how do I let go of this relationship? How do I let go of whatever this thing that I want to let go of is? And I have to remind people that letting go is not something you do. It's something you stop doing, meaning you stop clinging to the yeah. thing or the toxic relationship or whatever it is. Because if you want to let go of a piece of luggage that you're carrying, you're not going to ask me, how do I let go of it? You just mm. stop holding on to it. And it sounds to me for a cluttered mind, a distracted mind, it's much more about not holding on so we can move forward. Yeah. But practically, how does that work? Well, we have to first tune up to being able to see clearly what's on the whiteboard. And most of us have no clue in any moment what's on the whiteboard. We're being driven by it. We're fused with it. But we're not really looking. Like, what is on my whiteboard right mm. now? That's actually one of the practices in the book. It's like, what's on your whiteboard? Mm-hmm. And that requires sort of a steadiness of mind so that you can see what's there. Oh, look at that. That's that thought that keeps coming up over and over again. Well, that worry about that thing I got to do in a couple of weeks still being written up on the on the whiteboard. So it's like first becoming aware And then realizing and really getting granular, and that's where this mindfulness piece comes in, of seeing your participation in keeping it on the whiteboard. Mm. Like me bringing it up again and whatever concepts I say to myself, I just rewrote it. Mm. So so how do you not have it come up is first acknowledge that it's occurring. And that seems like a trivial first step. It's probably the hardest step to actually see. That means you've got to be steady. That means that you can't be changing up what's on the whiteboard. You just have to really observe it and take a non-participatory or observational stance. Now, that sounds really like, what? But um, it really is like, and and I try to give a visual of this um, in something uh, called the river of thought practice. And a visualization always really helps, I think. So, So, you know, before you actually do the practice, just kind of visualize yourself 
Is this helpful if I talk Very, about that yeah. a little bit? Okay. So, because it really gets to how do I watch what's on the whiteboard and not participate, which is the first step to letting it fade away. So the visualization is something like, you know, imagine yourself, you know, you're going for a little hike and you come upon this clearing and there's a, you hear this babbling river, this babbling brook, and you see a giant boulder right by the river. It looks like a great place to sit down. So what you're going to do is actually just take a seat right there, right there in that moment. And you're just going to sit and observe, you know, what's going by in this river. And we know we can kind of imagine that experience and that what it would feel like. Like, I'm just here. I'm passively receiving the sight, sound, sense of this forest environment that I'm in. I'm not doing anything. I'm not chasing after, I'm not fishing. I'm not chasing after a leaf that's fallen in. I'm not trying to maneuver through the rapids of the river. I'm just watching what's happening. That is essentially a way to to watch what's on our whiteboard. And now we're going to do it not with this imagined scene, but with the contents of our own mind. So we take a seat, we get comfortable, quiet, and then we allow whatever arises in the mind to be there. Mm. Essentially, that's what's on, whatever we experience in our conscious moment-to-moment life is what's written on the whiteboard. And so now you're going to practice noticing what's there, but you're not going to follow a thought because that would be the equivalent of trying to grab onto a fish or yeah. uh, you know, run yourself down the river. You're just going to say, ah, there it is, and then let it, let it pass. Mm. And this practice will really help you get clarity on what is going on and become more attuned to when you're participating in its proliferation and its prolongment on your whiteboard. Mm. And it doesn't mean you can't. You don't lose the capacity to refresh stuff on your whiteboard. But you right. don't typically practice just watching what's there. Yeah. So it's the first step to really understanding how to let go when there is difficult emotion. I love it. I could use like all the advice in the world on how to pay better attention during a conversation. <laughs> like even with the podcast, like I'll have that thought. I'm like, oh, I got to bring that up. <laughs> And then like me sitting there holding on to it, I start to get distracted. And then I'm like, wait, what is Josh talking about right now? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, is that is there are there any other helpful hints like, um, you know, just just to be a better listener, to, yeah. to be more present when you're with someone? I'm, I'm glad you said that, right, because I also I highlighted page 248 here. I just want to read something and then I'd love for you to expand on it. So this is. We'll finish our more about less segment here with this. So this is from page 248 of Peak Mind. We'll put a link to the book in the show notes, by the way. And this is called Listening Practice. Conventional wisdom tells us that if we want to better communicate, if we want to be better communicators, we should practice communicating. But here is an important insight. To be a great communicator, you need to be able to listen really listen. When you do, you will have more information regarding what to say next, what is most appropriate, kind, and strategically useful. Here we go. First off, set the stage. Choose a question to ask a close friend or family member. Pick something such as, what would you like to do this weekend? You want something they can talk about uninterrupted for two minutes. And you have a little parenthetical here. I encourage you to let them know you're, you can tell you're a researcher, right? Because you're like, you got to disclose that you're in an experiment. Right. Yeah. Uh, simpletons, you don't have to tell them they're in an experiment. You're trying to listen to them. It's okay. So here's step one, convey the question to them. Step two, for the entire two minutes, uh-oh, make the person's response the object of your attention. Mm. I really struggle with this. Anchor (laughs) to it. If you notice your mind wandering, return back to it, just as you would do with any other core practices. This is also a practice. Step three. Love it. 
take one minute to write down any details about what you heard and then convey it back to them. Step four, switch places and ask them to listen to you for two minutes. And you talk about debriefing, et cetera. Mm. And you go on to say, listening is a powerful practice. It provides us with the opportunity to get comfortable being receptive. And we can even practice this simply by watching. As Yogi Berra said in his mid-cap way, you can observe a lot by just watching. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's, that's so good. That's so good. So what I'm hearing uh, this passage say is to practice listening. Like that's the best way to to be present with someone when you're having a conversation with them is just practice. Yeah. Practice, but you're doing it in a very specific way mm. because typically when we have a conversation with somebody, there is an agenda, right? Mm. There's an advancing of something or we're trying to get them to, con we're convincing them of something or mm. we're trying to come to some solution. And those are all important things to do. But if we don't have that core ability to actually listen fully in an unbiased manner, we may miss stuff. And also, in terms of connection and interrelationships with people, it feels so good to be listened to in that way. And so to, to, to really, you're both listening to the person, but you're also aware of what your mind is doing in that moment, right? So you, that, that's why it sort of builds on this uh, river of thought practice. It's like once you are aware of what's prominent in your own whiteboard, then you'll notice, just like you said a moment ago, Ryan, <laughs> like I'm trying to listen, but I'm just thinking about the next thing I want to ask. And that becomes so it's like that's written in giant bold pen and, you know, on the on this scratch space and I'm, everything else sort of fades away. Yeah. So so in some sense, it's to know when there's distraction that's arising. And then you you read it Beautifully, thank you. That was really fun to hear you read it. Oh, thanks. The key is when you notice that your mind has been distracted away from what you're hearing, return it back. Mm. And most of us don't do that. It's like, and the sooner we catch it, the sooner we'll be able to return back. Mm. Right? In some sense, what mm. we're doing is it's like we're old-fashioned radio station and we're, we're tuning in. And then when we have a thought related to even what's being said, we're on a different station. Yes. And so you're you're in that other content. You're listening to the other station. As soon as you realize, oh, my gosh, I want to go back to the, what's being said right now in front of me, then you switch back. So uh -huh. you'll miss less because you're going to come back more often. Right. But that means you have to be monitoring not only what's being said, but what's going on in your own mind mm. to catch yourself when you are distracted away. That's yeah. This is what I love about your book is like you have these exercises in there to help us to be able to do that more deliberately and to uh, yeah, for it to be effective rather because I can sit here and tell myself. Okay, go back to what the conversation was. Uh, the more I practice it, though, yes, the easier it's going to be. And that's the really important thing I'd like to just like this section, to, this segment to end with is this all the things that we're saying now, the reason it may sound and feel difficult is because it is. Yes. Because the default of the way that our mind works is that 50% of our waking moments, our mind is going to be somewhere else. Right. So that's where in the passage that you had me read, I say it's trainable because uh -huh. we do need to think about it as mental training to change the default of the way that we operate. Yeah. Now, maybe you can help me with this because there's one other sort of person in the room who isn't in the room when we're doing these podcasts. And that's why I have this this conversation. These conversations like this, they tend to be more difficult for me because I'm also not, I'm not just cognizant of what of our interaction. Yeah. I also want to make sure we're adding value to an audience who is listening, because mm -hmm. the worst thing I could do is if, you know, uh, 
if a million people end up downloading this episode, the worst thing I can do is waste 10 minutes of each of their time. That's such a tremendous mm. amount of, of time wasted, right? And and so I'm not only cognizant, and, and what I find though, unfortunately, and I don't know how to reconcile this, whenever I start thinking about them, I stop this because I can't have two flashlights going at once, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. And so I don't know, I don't even know how to approach that in a way that, now maybe I'd, you could just do the Joe Rogan thing where he's just like, hey, we're going to have a conversation and whatever happens, happens. If you want to listen to it, you listen to it. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, I'm really neurotic about adding value to the audience. I think it's lovely that you do that. And I think it, your audience appreciates that. So there's nothing problematic about uh, what you did is essentially what I'd call mind traveling. Right. So there's time mm. traveling, which is like when we change the station, we're somewhere else hijacked away by our own thoughts, whether it's about the past or the future. Right. But we're also traveling into the minds of other people. Mm. And what you're doing is essentially taking the perspective of the audience and, and trying to see what how they may perceive what is being said to see if there's value or not. Yeah. Beautiful thing to do. Really a sign of of empathy, of high social and emotional intelligence. Don't stop doing it, please, because it's really helpful. <laughs> now, why does it become problematic? Because as you are taking that other person's perspective, the, it's like the switching the stations thing. You're missing a little bit as you're doing that. But mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to be problematic. Just acknowledge, yeah, I'm going to take the perspective of what's going on here. Ask the person to repeat that, pre repeat what's being said if you need to. Sure. Uh, but I don't think you need to see it as problematic. I mean, is it is it problematic for you to do that? Well, I've just noticed that sometimes it makes it harder for me to focus. So it's right. a problem in that sense. Yeah. Because I'm not actually giving you or Ryan my full attention if I am. Like all of a sudden now I'm thinking like, hey, Mallory, do we have any comments or questions from the Patreon live stream right now? And as I start thinking that now it takes it yeah. away from, oh, crap, I was getting ready to ask Amishi about this page in her book or I was, and all of a sudden now my attention has, has moved away so from where it was. That's the other thing I was going to say is that, you know, there is nothing wrong with task switching. Anything complex that we do as human beings is going to involve that. Mm. There's nothing wrong with it. And if it feels like you're missing the granular details of everything being said, yeah, you're going to. Mm -hmm. If you're just not doing it for no reason. And if you're not doing it unknowingly, it's actually not a problem. Like yeah. that, and this is actually really important. And I do try to communicate that throughout uh, a lot of the chapters is we have to get out of this mode that there's something sort of fundamentally wrong with the way things are operating in our minds, but to understand the nature of it. So you knowing that when I'm thinking and uh, thinking about whether, uh, what did you call her? Malabama <laughs> has, yeah, something, yeah. Yeah. has something that I should contribute and I may miss something. You know, you know that uh -huh. and you will respond in, a, in an appropriate manner knowing that you may have missed something. Sure. That's mm. arming you with the right way to kind of get back into the conversation. Mm. So, you know, I would say what you're the problem with this whole issue is not even that you missed something. It's the worry that you've missed something. Mm. Uh. Right. Lee, you just proliferated more, more stuff on your whiteboard than you needed. Uh -huh. So I'm saying let that worry fade away. Yes. I mean, I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Mm. Well, um, before we get into our surprise questions, Malabama, um, do we have anything from the live stream? <laughs> Speaking of Speaking which. Speaking of, yes. <laughs> yes. We do have a comment from Andrea. This conversation about listening is so good. We also have one question from Brianna. Can some people handle, the, handle more on their whiteboard than others, or does everyone have biologically the same capacity? Well, that's a great question, because you've done 
like legitimate studies with mass, massive groups of people. So yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, great question. So the first thing to say is that the whiteboard is limited. Just there, there are limits. And yes, people vary on the uh, size of the whiteboard, if you will. And, you know, the whiteboard, remember, is just a metaphor. Working memory is limited, is limited in how much information and how long. And um, some people have more, some people have less. Uh, typically, we think about it as sort of when it has to do with like visual items, maybe three to four items is what we can hold in our working memory. For words and sort of what we'd call phonology, you know, the spoken spoken word, um, it depends on how long it takes to say the word. So, so even in, for example, languages where the sounds of the words are shorter, there may be more opportunity to fill working memory. So Chinese, for example, people have show larger working memory because each word is shorter in sound than German. Oh. So it's sort of interesting, right? So it's sort of time dependent. Um, in some sense when it has to do with visual information. But here's the important thing. So yes, it's limited and yes, people vary. But the most important thing that I think is the takeaway from a lot of these studies is no matter how robust or powerful your working memory is, you may have the best working memory ever. Under high stress circumstances, your working memory will get worse. Mm. <laughs> and Wait, is that true for everyone? And I, I'm sorry to interrupt because I... S with Ryan, he performs so well under stress. Ooh. He and I are exact opposites. You put me in a stressful situation. I shut down. I want to jump out a window. With him, we were in sales back in our corporate, <laughs> horrible, hideous corporate <laughs> days. And and we worked at the same corporation for a dozen years. And and he would wait till the end of the month to like exceed all of his goals. Like he needed <laughs> the pressure to thrive. It made diamonds for him. For me, it just uh, it, it broke me. <laughs> I, I know why this is, though, for me. Because when I'm actually under pressure, it forces me to focus my flashlight. Mm -hmm. So it helps me to stay on task. So when like something stresses me out, the reason why I can kind of be calm is because I'm like, oh, I'm allowed to only think about this one thing right now. Yeah. So in a weird way, it actually helps me to shine that flashlight a little bit more. And it doesn't necessarily help me multitask, which I can multitask in a somewhat like I remember one time I had a uh, like I was helping a customer out um I was like updating their phone so their phone's getting updated and mm -hmm. I'm like well while their phone's getting updated I'll help this person out with their question they had a question about their bill so uh, I'm helping them with their bill and then the phone rings and I so I was like doing these three things but it wasn't it wasn't uh you know super effective like I probably was actually doing a little bit worse of a job with each of them but I could go from like okay, you know, here, here's your problem. Okay. What's your question? Okay. Well, you know, let me get on the phone. Yeah. What's your question on the phone? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I can't multitask, but when it comes to de-stressing, it's because I have permission to not think about anything else. That's why I can actually get a little bit calmer under stressful situations. It's so funny. This is great. This, thank you for asking me and adding this component in because the key of what I said was under high stress circumstances, working memory will decline, right? So the high stress circumstances is where we're having a diff difference of opinion. The same circumstance that you considered as completely overwhelming and too much, you're like, no, I got this. Like, I can just focus and do this. So that's another really important aspect of this. Stress is relative. Stress experienced mm. by the individual is relative. Mm. And I have a little graph that I, I can just describe for people. Uh, it's a, a, In psychology, there are very few laws. It's not like physics. So when it's a law, that means it's seen a lot, a lot of times. And this is something called the Yerkes-Dotson law. Just think of it as a shape of an inverted U. Take up the letter U and flip it upside down. And then we put a little X and Y axis. On the X axis, it's how 
really demanding or stressful the circumstances are. And on the y-axis is performance. Mm. So when when there are no stressors, when everything is super chill, you know, you got a report due, but it's due in a year, not a lot of stress and not great performance. You're at the bottom of that inverted mm. U. As the stress increases, you end up at that peak point of the inverted U mm. where performance is the best. So I think that's what Ryan just described. There's enough of a stressor, enough of a pressure that I'm at my peak. I can do it. I'm focused. Mm. I can hone in. But what happens if you push past that? You're now on the downward part of the U. Mm. That's where you may end up. So even sure. though it may seem like it's the same circumstance, for you, it was really higher stress than maybe for for Ryan in that moment. Mm. And I'm sure yeah. there's other moments in which you'd have another way where you're feeling like, this is fine. And he's like, I can't oh, yeah. deal with this. So oh, this probably all... not. No, well, no that's <laughs> not. my peak no. is way sooner. I, I, that, that's what, so if I'm looking at the XY... Uh, graph you're describing here it's just my peak tends to be way sooner like yeah. oh this book this this book is due a year from now how about we just finish it right. today <laughs> right so, you're, you're, so your peak is at the top of that at, at, you know yeah it's, it's at the peak where mine is because of the way my mind works like i'm not at my peak performance right yeah right oh, so this is really helpful to know okay so you know the first time i ever described this work and and we were talking to some of the groups that we work with high high demand groups so marines mm. i had this big tough looking <laughs> Marine guy basically say, no, ma'am, stress activates me, you know? Yeah. And I think what he was talking about is that there are certain levels of stress where I feel like I'm at my peak. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the important thing to remember. Even if in that moment, at, in the moment of feeling at, at your peak, you were doing great. If the level of demand, that same level of demand extends over time, you're going to start slipping into distress. Mm. So, you know, right now, the moment you were just describing, I thought was a great example. Like, you, you got it. You're in a flow. You got multiple things happening. You know that all you need to do is focus on this. Mm. If I made you do that for eight hours more, you're not, you're not going to perform well, right? right? So so this is the thing we learned in our work with service members is that what initially felt like uh, optimized stress tended to over a longer period of time, four to eight weeks, and then, of course, being deployed itself, mm. they start slipping into what they experience as distress and mm. working memory gets worse. Mm. That makes sense. So so this is very important to know because think of any high stress period of time in your life. You are likely to have worse working memory at the kind of end of that than at the beginning. And this mm. is true for, for example, service members being about to being ready for deployment or deploying themselves. Athletes in preseason training and training itself, students going through the academic semester, your attention is worse at the end of the semester than at the beginning of the semester. Then you got to take final exams. Yeah. So part of the reason I got motivated to try to figure out trainability solutions is because I kept seeing this pattern over and over again is that, you know, working memory is good. It doesn't matter if it's uh, people vary, but working memory is pretty good at the beginning of a high stress interval. But by the end, no matter the group and no matter the starting point, people were a little bit worse. Sure. And that's and you don't want to be worse in some of these circumstances. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I was talking to. So we have a, a friend, uh, Dan Harris. Actually, Sam Harris has also been on the podcast. You know, they both have meditation apps. Right. Yep. I was talking to Dan about the term mindfulness seems like a almost like a misnomer in a way, like wanting to practice mindfulness, because it seems that as though the full mind is actually the the nemesis that keeps me from being focused keeps me from being in what one might call a flow state. When, when a athletic performer, say a basketball player or a golfer is performing really well, they tend to be in a state of no mind in a way. And, and I know it, quite, quite in a scenario like this, quite a, it, it's just um, 
semantics. I'm not trying to make a semantic argument here, but isn't mindfulness isn't about filling our mind up, obviously. It's merely about paying attention to what is the, the river that is simply flowing through it. Yeah. I mean, mindfulness can be now, especially the term is used much more often. So I want to make sure I'm very clear on what I mean by it. Yes. Because it's not literal. It's not having a full mind. Um, mindfulness, the way that I operationalize it or, or define it, is paying attention to our present moment experience. So really, attention key is key. Mm -hmm. Right now is key. Paying attention to our present moment experience without elaboration or emotional reactivity. What does elaboration look like? What you just what you did a few moments ago. I got to switch tasks to figure out what's going on, and then I got I'm worried about the fact that I did that, and I'm, I'm really paying attention. Uh -huh. It's it's not just the thought; it's the thought hyperlinked to the other thoughts. Mm -hmm. So when we don't elaborate, what we're doing is saying we're not going to hyperlink. Ah. We're just we're getting what you might call the raw data of what's occurring without creating a story about it. Yes, without editorializing about it, and you know, there's all these great, um, you know, I'm in. L.A. now, uh, there's all these great director's cuts of movies, right, where you watch the movie and you're watching the movie, but then the, you can hear, you can set it on the setting where you can hear the director talking about everything. Like when this scene, what I was trying to capture, our minds are constantly replaying a second set of storyline on top oh. of what is actually being experienced. Wow. And so the non-elaborating and non-reactivity is like dialing down that secondary chatter. Yeah. So that we're just... Staying at the level of the experience itself. Mm. Yeah. And so that is really, a, 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 we can understand what that means. We know what that feels like in some sense. Like, yeah, I'm right here right now. I'm getting the raw data of what's going on. I'm not thinking about, oh, or, you know, is Josh liking my answer right now? And what, what about Ryan? I haven't looked at him in a while. Should mm -hmm. I like, that's the extra stuff on top of, I'm mm -hmm. just in this flow, letting it happen, talking about what I want to talk about right now. Yes. Right? Mm. So with mindfulness training, and I, I think this is kind of a helpful thing that um, people can use to anchor around the concept. If we think of the mind as like an MP3 player, mm. <laughs> <laughs> oftentimes we are in rewind or fast forward. That would be, would be something we'd call time travel, mental mm -hmm. time travel, right? Mm -hmm. Or we're mind traveling, as I was saying. We're in somebody else's mind. What we're not doing is having that button right on play mm. when we're experiencing the moment-to-moment -moment unfolding of our lives. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when we we don't we can't simply will mindfulness to happen all the time. It is an intrinsic capacity. We can all be mindful. We can all certainly think about times in our lives where I felt really clear, sharp, present, aware of what was happening, and aware that I was aware of what's happening, mm. which is having that button on play. But because the mind has this tendency to fast forward and rewind or jump into other people's minds, 50% of our waking moments, we need to train so that we're better able to call upon this intrinsic mental capacity on demand. Yes. Mm. Now, I love this metaphor of the director's cut. Yeah. yeah. Because my life is awesome. But the the director's cut of my life sucks. <laughs> and it's just so chattery, right? And if I could just get rid of the that if I there was like the menu option, I could remove the director's cut of my life, it would it, it would just remain awesome in a way. It, it reminds me of um we had a few times we've had Dr. Christopher Ryan on the podcast. He wrote a book called Civilized to Death. And one of the things that he he talks about in that book is that schizophrenics in different cultures, I have a lot of schizophrenia in my family, so I'm very familiar with, with that. But in our culture, 
it manifests and we beat ourselves up. Oh, you piece of crap. I can't believe you would do this. You're a horrible human being. But in some places, schizophrenics are like the, the mind or the, the voice in their head is you should do the dishes today. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and it's like, oh, this, I have a helpful voice in my head instead of <laughs> I can't believe you. you mm. And I, I wonder what that is. If it's a it's a sort of cultural programming in a way i mean uh, it's a western thing it seems that western schizophrenics but like to some extent we're all we all have that voice in our heads right and we've just drawn an arbitrary line somewhere and, and we call it schizophrenia or we call it bipolar disorder or whatever do you have any insights around that as a neuroscientist yeah i mean it's interesting so you're picking up on the first point which is that yes there is this constant mental dialogue that we're having with ourselves. And oftentimes it is this editorializing director's cut. I would, by the way, say that there is a way you can click off the menu, but you're gonna have to train for it a little bit more. Uh, the fact that you notice it more and more is a great sign. So here's the thing. When we're typically having an experience um, and we have the story version of the experience, like this is the best I've ever performed. Like we talk about this with athletes too. Like, I just had this play, and that was awesome. Look at me. I am awesome. That's mental chatter. That's a story about what happened. Or it could be, that sucked, and I'm never going to recover, and how am I ever going to uh, be able to get back out on the field? I'm a loser, right? So both of those are examples of, in some sense, like you said with the schizophrenics, one helpful, one harmful. Right. And I wouldn't even say the other one is helpful necessarily, but one more positive and one more negative. Mm, sure. But the thing that's common about them both, it's just an overlay on what actually occurred. So there's the what occurred on the playing field and then the person, the athlete, him or herself saying this occurred and it means all these things. Right. Right. And and the from the attention researcher point of view, that extra overlay is costing you. It is costing you in terms of your attentional energy mm -hmm. because in the next moment you still have to execute. If the mind is in the past about what's occurred, whether it's positive or negative, you aren't in play right now. And literally, you're in the, on the playing field. You need to be in play. So the first step is to realize that it happens and that it is a story. It is made up in your mind. It is the thought that you had. And, you know, another kind of shorthand phrase that I like to remind myself and other people of is thoughts aren't facts. So that thought aspect is I generated from the thought pump that is my mind and I bought it. I bought it as if it were reality. Mm -hmm. But if I could remember that it's actually not necessarily reality, that's be helpful. How do I how do I remember that? What can I do in that moment to kind of shake away the fusion I have between the thought and my experience? Mm -hmm. Well, this is where something very handy can be cultivated, something called decentering. So decentering is essentially it's like you're 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 a reporter hovering. I was like when I talked to my kids about this, I'm like, imagine you're like a traffic reporter in the sky in a helicopter looking down on what's occurring right now, right? So if you're in a difficult moment, and my daughter's a um, a competitive dancer, and so oftentimes you know this sort of thing comes up where she can, and many athletes experience this, like get in that headspace of you're not going to help yourself by where your mind is. So how do you kind of shake that loose? Well, if you essentially take the bird's eye view. You're in the helicopter reporting the experience. Use the third person to describe what's happening. You know, Amishi right now is feeling nervous. She's feeling tense. She's having thoughts that she's not going to be successful or she's not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. But I'm reporting it. So this is where the fact that we only have flat one flashlight is so helpful. You can't be pointing the flashlight, experiencing it, and 
hovering above, looking down on it both. Mm -hmm. So you essentially are distancing yourself to look down on the experience. That's the first level of kind of shake it off to say, okay, this is what is being experienced. It's not reality. It is just the thought that's occurring right now. And then it loosens the grip of the thought on your mind. It quiets it down. So even when you have that, you know, I love the way you put it. My life is great, but the director's cut of my life can <laughs> suck sometimes. Well, you know, to notice that that is the director's cut, it's not necessarily describing reality, is a really, really powerful first step. Yes. And if we do that more by default, where we're like, I'm having the thought that the reason the guy walking toward me down the hall um, sneered at me is because I'm a terrible human being versus, <laughs> oh, I think he just stubbed his toe. Like, you know, these are both stories about what happened. Yeah. Why am I choosing the version that is is uh, negative. And then the next question is, why am I choosing any version at all? All I saw was a couple of facial features of somebody that passed me by. Done. Next yes. next moment, please. Mm. So if we can kind of start cultivating this, we can loosen the grip. And there's another sort of prison that we build here, because even if that is true, the guy walking down the hall does think you're a terrible human being. The other story that we're telling ourselves is I need his veneration. I need his approval. I need him to feel a particular way about me in order for me to be happy or joyous or complete. And without that validation, then I am nothing. That is mm. also a story we Think tell about ourselves. all the hyperlinking that you just did and how cluttered your whiteboard is now. Ooh. Mm. <laughs> yes. Right? And it mm -hmm. just came from the story clicking on the next story piece mm. and building into the entire conceptual landscape that social interactions can produce. Yes. Wow. Danny, get me a dry eraser, please. <laughs> unclutter this whiteboard. We got a bunch of uh, surprise questions here today from our Patreon supporters. Melinda has a question for us. I'll get into a great flow state working on something, but distractions always seem to find me. How do I deal with unavoidable interruptions? Hmm. So, Amishi, unavoidable interruptions. We're talking about distractions today. Unavoidable interruptions. Now, most interruptions are avoidable. I think we could start there. We are interrupting ourselves all the time. We set ourselves up in environments that interrupt us constantly. The pings, the notifications, the emails, the social media streams, the Facebook posts, the TikTok. All of a sudden, we're interrupted all day. We've signed up for many of our interruptions. But even if we get rid of those, we turn off the notifications, we check the inbox once a day, we remove email from our phone, we remove social media from our phone, there will always be unwelcomed interruptions in our lives as long as we are you know, living in a society with other people. Yeah. Can we talk about those? Yeah, but even if we did that, even if we moved away from a society with other people, and we set ourselves up to do something. Let's say I'm going to go on a retreat in the forest. And I'm going to write this paper, manuscript, or poem, whatever it is. And so there are no external interruptions that should be pulling me away. I guarantee there's going to be interruptions that are unwelcome that still occur. Because your mind is still with you. Mm. And there's this great story about these um, medieval monks that literally were monastics. Uh, that dedicated their, their lives to God, like, you know, hundreds of years ago. And they were getting so irritated because they'd be praying and all of a sudden they'd have a thought about lunch mm. or they'd have some sexual fantasy that would arise. Like they were constantly getting distracted and they would get so angry with themselves because the mind just would not stop pumping out thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing I want to say to everybody that has distractions that are maybe unavoidable and external or an internal 
fluttering that can arise is that's normal. Like it happens. What you do next is what it may be more in your control. So the first step is to notice that it's occurred. I am distracted right now. My mind is not where I want it to be. You know, the flashlight I want pointing here, but it's over here. That is huge. That's a huge win to say my mind is not where I want it to be. But then that gives you permission and instruction to do something else, which is, oh, now that I know I'm not where I want it to be, bring it back. So it's focus, notice, redirect. Mm. And that, by the way, is the exact same set of components that are part of a foundational mindfulness practice. Mm. And that we can do over and over again. And then the distractions have less power over us. Because the reason I think people get so panicked about distractions, just like those medieval monks did, is they think that they're going to be compelled to interact with them in that hyper-proliferating manner that clutters the entire whiteboard. And then you're toast. And it's like, I can't even think anymore. All I see is like a thousand thoughts, right? So, So instead, if you really hone in on this capacity to notice what's going on, you have other choices that you could make. Mm -hmm. Either continue in that proliferation or just simply return that flashlight back to where you want to focus. Mm. So what were the the three things again? Notice? Focus. Focus and Notice, redirect. Okay. So you were describing, uh, Ryan, at the outset that you did the uh, find your flashlight practice. You were doing the breathing exercise. Yeah. Uh, last night to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons, uh, so can I just describe what that is? So yeah, that people absolutely. Know? Please do. So that breathing practice, uh, again, I call it the find your flashlight practice, is essentially take a few moments, sit in a quiet place, upright, not uptight, kind of, you're taking this seriously. Notice that your body's breathing, just broadly. And then notice something vivid about the fact that you are breathing. Mm. Vivid, really vivid in your sensory experience, like the coolness of air moving in and out of your nostrils, or your chest moving up and down, whatever it is for you. That's the target for your attention. That's the anchor for your attention. Mm. And then for the few minutes of the practice, you're going to take your flashlight of attention and point it on those breath-related sensations. For me, it tends to be the uh, air in the nostril. So I Mm. keep my flashlight there, focus, focusing it there. That's the intention. Second step, notice when your mind has wandered away from that focus. So you're, and that is, by the way, that's where you're using the floodlight, that metaphor of that broad receptive stance. So you're constant, constantly kind of watching, where is my mind right now? Mm-hmm. I didn't say if you're one of those weirdos whose mind wanders, everybody's mind will wander. 50% of our waking moments, the mind will wander. So you're focused on that breath-related sensation. You notice that the mind has wandered. Mm-hmm. So focus, notice, third step, redirect. Redirect it. And so this can be very helpful in every single thing we do. The, the power of distractions will be dialed down. The power of uh, being overtaken by our own thoughts will be dialed down. And for you last night, I think it probably helped you fall asleep because yeah. that whole proliferation of mental content quiets. Yeah. It actually is a way we can quiet because there's only one thing I'm focused on. Breath. Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens, you know, as we're laying down, as I'm laying down, going to sleep, like I'm unpacking the day. Yeah. So I'm like reliving the day. And then uh, I I will start thinking about the the next day and all these stories start to develop. And what's nice about this practice is, yeah, it, it puts you in the present moment and kind of cuts those stories out. And when I have less chatter in my mind, yeah, it's easier for me to fall exactly. asleep. So what I hear you saying is like, it's not about, you know, to, like to answer Melinda's question, it's not about avoiding these distractions. It's about how do you handle these distractions when they come up? Because they will inevitably come up. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think avoiding is like a tricky thing. I would say definitely advantage yourself to try to monotask versus putting yourself in a context 
where you feel you're going to have to do multiple things. Mm-hmm. So try to minimize that, just like you were starting out by saying. We can control some of that. Realize that even if you perfectly do that, there are going to be interruptions, just emergent things that come up. Mm-hmm. You might get a phone call because you need to take it. Mm-hmm. But more than that, notice that the mind's internal distractibility will continue. And there's nothing to really worry about about it. Just mm-hmm. notice that it's happening. And don't all, don't sort of take the bait, if you will. Noticing means you've got control. Like, do I want to keep having the thought about tomorrow morning? Do I really need to think more about the plans for tomorrow? Ask yourself that, mm-hmm. right? And then if you decide in that moment, yeah, you know, I still do really want to sort that out, fine. But if you say, you know what? I'm trying to fall asleep right now. I didn't need to plan tomorrow's entire day. Mm. Get back. Yeah. So that just gives you so many more choice points. Yeah. And you're not so compelled by the distraction and definitely your chances of becoming overwhelmed by the distraction may be dialed down. Yeah. Can you just speak a little bit to, so you have a practice, uh, some practices in your book. And like these are, these have been tested on athletes. They've been tested on uh, Marines. What, like if someone reads your book and they, they, they put these practices in the life, what's the hard data that says like it actually helps? This is how you get, you know, the peak mind. Yeah. And that's kind of why I wanted to write the book in the first place is because we kept seeing over and over again a couple of patterns. The first is that attention is extremely powerful. Like the way people pay pay attention and their ability to do so impacts their performance Mm -hmm. and their well-being. Mm. So they feel better. They're more capable. They're more successful at what they're trying to achieve. They're more fulfilled by what they want to achieve. Very important. So we knew that that was attention is going to be important. But the second piece, which was really the eye-opening piece, is it's extremely vulnerable. Mm. So under high stress, and it may not be, you know, something you know is going to happen. You may be landing in the middle of it. You know, a family member gets sick or there's a challenge with something having to do with your house. You're, you never know, right? There's It's not maybe preparing for deployment to war, but there are going to be periods of time where stress will occur. It'll be protracted and your attention declines. That is consequential. Mm. So attention is powerful, vulnerable. So then the solution was like, let's just train for it. Let's train every day in the same way we train for our physical wellness because we never know when the next high stress interval may, may occur. So the data itself was us tracking with objective measures. And even in the larger field of, of my field now, contemplative neuroscience, we're going to track with brain imaging. We can track people's brain function to see what happens. Is attention actually objectively less effective? under high stress? Yes. Now let's give mindfulness training in that interval. The suite of practices in this book are essentially from the wisdom traditions. I didn't really, I may have modified them for a modern twist to give imagery and examples that make it more accessible, but these have been around at the core for thousands of years. And they're not mine alone. They're they're really part of the world's wisdom. But doing them with regularity about 12 minutes a day for four four to six to eight weeks, you know, around four weeks is a good ramp up produced protection against decline in attention, mm. protect protection against decline in mood, and a reduction in stress levels. So that was the objective stuff. And then we can look at like brass tax performance. How do people actually perform? And, you know, a study we just came out with recently uh, was in military service members, and they got this uh, mindfulness program over uh, four weeks, mindfulness-based attention training. We wanted it to sound tough, so it was MBAT was the mm. acronym. <laughs> and we gave it to them in the pre-deployment interval. And and yes, as unfortunately, things got bad and their attention started declining. They took the program and, and were able to stay stable over time. Mm. A collaborating group of Army researchers took that same program and offered it to people and found that 
pass rates on something called the stress shoot, which is essentially they stress them out, you know, they do physical activity, and then they have to hit their mark on marksmanship. They were better at doing that. And mm. this is very important. It's not just that they were better at shooting. It's they were better at shooting when they were supposed to and withholding when they were supposed to. Mm. So think about what Ooh, that yeah. could mean for any other people where their actions or inaction are consequential. So that's the objective data that we've been looking at. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Because, um, yeah, there's a there's an experience in the book you talk about. Um, yeah, this certain commander has the authority to like bombard this town. And he was like, well, hold on. Like, let's just double, triple check. Let's, you know, let's take that flashlight and really focus. And because of his caution, he realized like, oh, wow, these are a bunch of civilians. It could have went way wrong Bad. if he didn't yeah. have that ability. Yeah. That's right. To yeah. not take action kind of uh, ballistically without thought and without planful, you know, understanding of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, what's cool about this too is there's no, like, A, there's no woo-woo to it. Like, that's what I like about, really like about your book. One of the things is just how there is hard data to back up everything that you're talking about. And the other thing too, and you even kind of bring this up in your book, there's there's not anything like even spiritual about it. It's just hard data. I, I, there was like the experience of the the general or someone who at first was kind of like looking at meditation like it was Hinduism or Buddhism. He was like associating some type of religious spiritual beliefs with it. And then as he started to look into it, he realized like, oh, wow, this is just like practical stuff. Yeah. And, you know, thank you for mentioning that because, you know, I want to first say like I honor people's religious spiritual traditions. People should be able to do whatever they want. But I'm a brain scientist and I did this work from my expertise as a scientist, really wanting to see uh, fundamentally, could we train attention? And if we did so, could we benefit people's lives? So it's a cognitive training approach that I took. And so, and frankly, I would say I, I myself, even though I'm an Indian woman and heard about mindfulness and meditation since I was a kid, seeing my parents meditate, I never really thought it was something that could be taken seriously from a scientific perspective. I was mm-hmm. kind of a skeptic, like, yeah, that's great for you, but not really what hard-nosed scientists are going to do. I had to overcome my own <laughs> my own biases against mindfulness because, frankly, out of all the different things that we had studied in the lab, it was the only thing that reliably repeatedly benefited attention. Mm. And so we can add on, you know, whatever uh, sort of broad cultural, religious, spiritual container supports that for the individual, they should feel free to use that. I'm just saying that when we take it at this level from a brain science perspective, it does seem to be training the brain in a successful and beneficial manner. We got a question here from Beck. I struggled to release physical objects without my brain saying, you can't let go of that. How do you override your mind's defensiveness when you really don't need something anymore? Mm. So, Amishi, we <laughs> we quite often want to get rid of something intellectually, but emotionally, viscerally, our mind's saying, you can't let go of that. Now, mm. that has to do, we've been talking about the stories we tell ourselves. And so I think this has to do with also stepping back and seeing the story I'm telling myself, why can't I let go of that? I would even say before you do the why can't I let go of that, because now you're going to get into a conversation with yourself where you're either going to convince yourself that you can or you're going to make all the cases where you can't. Mm-hmm. First, just start with that acknowledgement. I am certainly feeling magnetically pulled to keep this. Mm. How does that feel in my body? 
Like, how do I feel right now when I think about the thought of giving this away? Oof. You know, the tension in my stomach or like that feeling of longing that feels I can feel it in my skin. Let yourself feel that. Mm. Let yourself feel that. Don't don't try to rationalize that it's not going to happen. But when the fear and the reality can be already embodied, it may free you up to say it actually wasn't that bad. I got through it. I let myself feel that. And then I moved on to the next moment. Yes. And that gives you more choices to say, you know what, maybe I can actually take that bird's eye view, look at me feeling like I'm going to really miss this, but then realizing it does pass away. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I can make a different choice. Yes. But it's the fear of even wanting to experience it or the resistance to experiencing that. And then and then the proliferation of why, 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 why am I, why am I not going to let it go of it? Why does this meter avoid, if you can, for uh-huh. a moment at least, that conceptual elaborative aspect. Uh-huh. And just sit with the raw sensory experience. Mm. Yes. I <laughs> love it. Laura has a question for us. How can I escape doom scrolling and reduce the distraction of social media? Throw your phone away. <laughs> Throw your laptop away. <laughs> so so this, this phenomenon recently coined doom scrolling. It's almost as though we are seeking out our own doom, our own discontent in ways. And the reason we do that is because we do get something from it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. Evolutionarily, it wouldn't make sense. Just like the reason our attention pings from one place to another is to, so we don't get eaten by some predator or attacked by some other tribe. Mm. And so that's a feature. But also the doom scrolling, we're getting something out of us, or at least we're telling ourselves that we're getting something out of yeah. seeking out that news or that information. I would not I would not uh, put that second point on as a given. Uh, you know, just accept that people are doing this, like that, mm. not that we are we are supposed to or that there's some value that we're getting out of it. I would mm. put that as a question mark. Are mm. we getting some value out of this? Because there's a very important component that we have to acknowledge. We are not neutral participants in a fair fight with social media. Social Mm. media has been designed by not just an engineer or two, but teams of algorithm builders that have designed ways to harness our attention, not just broadly speaking, like stuff that's that's fear-inducing or that's interesting or that's um, novel will get us. It's for us. It's customized to our particular interests, our particular fearful qualities, our particular... Um, exciting things that we like. So the the chances of us being able to fight the lure that is designed for us to want to invest our attention in it, look, there's no chance. Mm. There's no chance. So we have to remember that. That the So that's why I question, Mark, the, that we're doing this for some reason. I think that we have to remember that, and there's other people that have started talking about this notion of an attention economy, that we are participants. You know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product is another shorthand for this. Yes. So to remember that. To remember that this is the situation I'm in. Now, a lot of the advice given regarding what to do about breaking up with your phone, et cetera, you know, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily all that helpful because um, it's almost like food at this point. Like, you've got to figure out a different relationship if it's a problematic one. Mm. So what is the way I'm going to have a different relationship? Now, the first thing we can do to arm ourselves against this very unfair fight is to acknowledge it's an unfair fight. Like, you know, I'm not going to win this. Mm. So how can I behave in a way that's strategic and advantages me without fighting? Like, how can I set myself up so that I don't have to fight? Yes. So so this is where it's not going to be the most uh, quick fix answer, but it's the one that's probably going to help us the most. It's to use those same 
qualities of attention that we're cultivating. Focus, notice, redirect. Mm. So, for example, we and, and really mindfulness in this context of moment-to-moment awareness of what is happening in our moment, I mean, in our, in our experience. So um, the next time you are, here's what I think probably happens, and, and it happens to me too. I mean, we're all a work in progress. Mm. Typically, you're 30 minutes into your TikTok <laughs> time <laughs> before somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you said you were going to do blah dee blah or you're like, oh, crap, I forgot to pick up my kid from school. Whatever it is, <laughs> some external thing gets you to wake up out of the lure of this completely consuming engagement with pick your app of choice. I don't care. Mm. So how did that happen? I mean, nobody puts you there with your eyes on the phone. No, You did that yourself. Yeah, right. At some point, you picked up the phone. You actually looked at the phone. You put your code in or you did face activation. You clicked on an app. You read and scrolled through the app. Your finger moved multiple times. Mm-hmm. That was not happening by a robot. That was happening by you yourself. But I'm positive most of us have no memory of any of that and have no awareness that we did all of those steps. Mm, yes. So if we think about our phone itself as an opportunity to practice mindfulness, we can take a different approach. You know, just notice the experience of holding the phone. Literally, I'm in this moment, I feel the phone. Notice the act. Remember that you're doing this of Mm. getting into the app. Notice that you're actually clicking. And what I recommend people to do to really help themselves is have a goal for why you're going to engage with this particular app. Mm. And, And once you achieve that goal, acknowledge that you've achieved that goal and ask yourself, do I need to continue? So, you know, like for me, and I described this, I wanted to buy like new, uh, a new pan. And then I'm like, all of a sudden I'm like listening to 50 different food bloggers talk about, you know, how to prepare tofu in a certain way with an air fryer. I'm like, what am I doing? But what you can do is say the purpose of this engagement is to find a new pan and find some trusted sources on it. Have I done that? Yes. Do I want to keep going? Should I keep going? Mm. Those are all choice points. And then you can decide in that moment. But if you are completely oblivious, there's no chance. Mm. So that's just some of the some of the helpful ways we can really use our phones as a way to practice mindfulness, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it would be easy to just sit here and it I guess it might be easier, you know, to to fast than it is to diet, but to throw away your phone, to get rid of your screens, there's gonna be some some inconvenience, there's gonna be some pain that you're gonna have to deal with. So Finding a way to do do it mindfully and noticing each step of it, um, yeah, I mean, that'll at least help us to have a better control of that flashlight rather than, yeah, the doom scrolling for sure. I had I stopped looking at the news like two months ago. I stopped um, like back at the beginning of last year and then I, it started back up again. Um, and I just realized like that's exactly what I was doing. I was doom scrolling. I was... I was looking for something to arouse, you know, my my curiosity or my fears or whatever it was. And just by not looking at the news and being more deliberate about that, I find myself being at peace more. I, I'm worrying much less. And never did, I didn't look at the news one time last year and thought, oh, thank God I found out about that. Mm. Thank God I was informed about that. Yeah. <laughs> like if, if there's a you know if there's a major catastrophe for us, like I'm going to hear about it. I don't ha- I don't really have to look at the news to find out uh, about true emergencies. Typically, as Amishi highlighted, that these corporations, multinational, trillion dollar corporations, 
make money by aggregating your eyeballs mm -hmm. onto their products and services they're trying to sell to you. So you are also becoming the product. And so the reason that Facebook is quote unquote free or Instagram is free or TikTok is free because it's free monetarily, but there is no refund for misspent attention. Mm. Right. And so we're spending, we're wasting, we're squandering our attention. And so we do get something out of it. Now, these demographers, statisticians, algorithm scientists are feeding us what David Foster Wallace referred to as food pellets from the universe, mm. but they're like empty calories in a way. So we feel as though we're getting something because it tastes sweet mm. metaphorically, but it doesn't nourish us the same way that if our attention was focused on the thing we wanted it to be focused on, we're essentially, as Ryan said, we're going out and distracting ourselves or in your case you were seeking out something to be upset about in yeah. a way i was seeking out an emotional response yeah and i think that's i would say that i don't know if it's all food pellets and empty calories mm. i would say i'm more i'm more agnostic about that because i think mm. there's some really beautiful stuff that we yeah. yeah i learned about you two from stuff yeah. on social media so sure. like i would say that i don't want to make it an all or none issue. Right. I think that the key to maneuver through is to demand more responsible um, action from these giant companies. For example, don't allow the scroll, allow uh, essentially a page break, as simple as that. Because we know, you've read articles, right, where it's like, do you want to advance to the next screen to keep reading? Mm. And that's a decision point. It's like, oh, I don't have time right now. Mm. The scroll makes it continuous, which extends the chances that you are going to make a decision regarding continuing. Yes. So simple things that can be done, I think that that needs to happen. But the other point is we need to change our relationship and realize that we have a we 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 will need to change our relationship. And what you were saying regarding, you know, the um maybe even searching out things to get angry or upset about, um to really notice that. To really notice that. Because in the same way that we talk about, you know, again, food, there's a lot of parallels there. It's like Oh, I'm doing this because of this. Mm. You know, it it that's fine and that is it's a it's it's sort of this thing in psychology where there's this whole notion of change the thoughts, change the content of the thoughts. What I'm saying is you can do that. That's fine. There's cognitive behavioral therapy, there's other approaches and that's very useful. Mm -hmm. But the other way is change the way that you are paying attention in your engagement with whatever you're doing. Yes. And you can't do that unless you start cultivating the capacity to know where your attention is. It goes back to what I was saying earlier. Pay attention to your attention. Mm, yes, indeed. Yeah. We got one more question here from Scott on Patreon. What are the neurological implications of social decluttering when people only keep a few close friends in place of a lot of casual acquaintances? Now, this is one of those questions where Ryan and I are also appreciably different here. I'm an extreme introvert. I spend 90% of my time alone, even though I'm married with a kid. I, I don't spend time with people. Uh, I... On the podcast, I struggle listening because of the stuff we talked about earlier. But in my personal life, I do a pretty solid job listening to other people because I'm not worried about some sort of outside observer also watching that conversation, right? Uh, and yet, I found in a weird way, because I listen well, and that is also a practice. I've, I'm not inherently or naturally a, a great listener. But because I listen well, through practice to others, I found that I don't like spending a whole lot of time with other people. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it, it 
I don't know, almost like it's nails on a chalkboard to my nervous system in a way. Whereas Ryan has a lot of acquaintances and sure. and you know, he's an extreme extrovert, like the most extroverted person I know, right? <laughs> and that's not to say one thing is is bad or good. Probably our default setting, our evolution ha- is closer to where Ryan is. You know, if you go observe the Hadza in Tanzania, there are no introverts in the Hadza. Mm. It just doesn't exist. Uh, in our culture, though, we we've carved out this this distinction, this almost a binary, this introvert extrovert thing. Mm. And so the the question itself, I think it really has to do with the person, right? Because Scott is asking about decluttering, uh, social decluttering, right? Decluttering people basically. And the question almost presupposes that it's good to have three friends like Josh does, but it's bad to have 300 friends like Ryan does. Well, no, it's what is most appropriate for Ryan. It would be terrible for me to be in his shoes and vice versa. Mm. He would drive the people in his life crazy if he just had three people around him, (laughs) right? And I would be driven crazy by the 300 people. And so I think when we talk about decluttering our relationships, it's understanding our relationship to our relationships. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Mm. you answered it beautifully. (laughs) I think that that's really the thing to think about is that and also to really through all of this, be aware again, thoughts aren't facts. Whatever story you've got about what's going on is one of the things that could be true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, you said something just a moment ago that really kind of uh, triggered that. Right. Like where you said um I had to practice listening like I've had to practice listening. I probably wasn't really good at it. Maybe maybe you did have an intrinsic capacity to do that. I mean, it's just this agnostic kind of neutral example of it. But every time we say something, whether it's regarding our own behavior, our own relationships, the nature of who we are, I think that part of what happens when you cultivate mindfulness into your life is you realize the kind of fuzzy, uh, the the fuzzy edges of anything that you say. And, you know, I really do think, by the way, when I was thinking about coming here and, and the notion of objects and minimalism, uh, there's a kind of a, a big word, but I'm going to use it anyway, something called reification, right? Mm. This notion of concretizing an idea. Mm. So so anytime you say, I am this, mm. I am that. And I'm not talking about sort of um, um, kind of a moral stance you might take, et cetera. I'm talking about sort of your your characterization about you, yourself, your relationships, events, whatever it is. Anytime you take that kind of solidity approach, um, chances are you're not allowing for enough leeway and things that may not end up being that solid. Mm. Um, Because frankly, the nature of reality is that it is mutable and it is impermanent and it is interconnected. And all those aspects of reality mean anytime we want to take something solid and make it unchangeable, we're fighting the nature of reality. Yes. Right. So in some sense, what I love about the kind of minimalist approach is that you're questioning reification because everything that is some sense, like we were saying earlier, the object isn't equal to the memory. Don't reify the memory into the object. They're separate things. And memories can be held in multiple ways. And objects don't need to be clung to in that solid manner. Mm. So there's a term that we use called de-reification, which is essentially to kind of put that little asterisk next to, to any time you have this solid feeling about something and say, maybe, maybe not. Mm. You know, and and just I want to be clear that what I mean by that is not like to question yourself, but to say that I am this or that with that certainty 
doesn't always serve us. And to be aware that there's flexibility in the way thoughts can evolve and change, just like our relationships to things can change. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of this old Chinese parable, which I know I'll butcher, but there's a, a the farmer that um, sees his uh, son get injured. And yeah. The, the, the townspeople are like, oh, that's awful. That's so that's terrible. the worst thing ever. And he mm. says, maybe. Yep. And the next day, like the army draft comes by and they're like, oh, we can't take your son. He has a broken leg. And, and the, the, the townspeople, oh, that's wonderful. And the farmer goes, maybe. Mm. And, and, and that's kind exactly. of what you're describing here. Exactly. And then to understand that the nature of reality is much more nuanced, complex and evolving than that. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I'm I'm curious because there are we, we talked about this a bit on the minimal episode, but it seems to me there are certain savants of living. Now, I don't know how much of it's an affectation when you see someone like Osho on, you know, and I've seen a lot of his videos and stuff. And I mean, not only does he look like a Star Trek character, the way he's dressed <laughs> and he's in some giant chair, but he does seem to be doing exactly what you're talking about in your book with, you know, we can remove all the spiritual practices or whatever, but he seems to be so attention focused on the moment. Like I won't say undistractable, but it feels as though he is in that state of no mind or, or continue it. He doesn't have that 50-50 problem that you described. And I, it seems to me there are some people who have practiced mindfulness for extended periods of time and not just a 30-day retreat or 10-day retreat, but for years and years and years that they almost exude peace in a way that um, it's, it's almost the opposite of what our culture has instilled in us. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's probably true. I mean, there's experts and savants in many areas, right? Olympian-level meditators, for example. Mm -hmm. And the Dalai Lama is another person that comes to mind when you think about those qualities. And um, even being in his presence, you kind of feel that. You feel yeah. like, oh, I'm getting the, the, I'm getting the benefit of his practice. And that was key for me, was to realize this is not – it may be something intrinsic. Who knows, right? There's certainly people that would say, well, the tradition suggests he – he is the whatever incarnation, yada, yada. But the thing he'll say is I practice four hours a day mm. and I'm still a novice. So the humility and the dedication to cultivating a mind so that on demand daily, regardless of the nature of the challenge, he can embody that. It's inspiring. It's very inspiring. And by the way, you don't need to practice four hours a day or be the incarnate Lama, you know, to benefit from that orientation. And I think for me, I'm just much more of a practical person and and I want to um, empower people to give it a try and not feel, because what often happens when you hear about Osho or the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa or, you know, Desmond Tutu and recently passed, it's just like, oh, that's for them. Those are the special people. Mm. And that peace of mind is for those types of people. And instead, it's it's a practice, and we can start. and And our research suggests that as little as twelve minutes a day is a great launch pad to cultivating these qualities of mind in ourselves. Um, and we can do it on our own. We don't need any special equipment, and we don't need a lot of guidance. I think mm. that you know, I try to lay out as, as simple and direct of a guidance as I could in in what I wrote. It reminds me of um, I, th I think it was Russell Simmons who. And this was like overwhelming or intimidating to me. He, uh, I heard someone ask him, what, what's one thing you recommend? He said, well, an hour of meditation a day. And 
person, well, I don't have an hour to meditate a day. And he goes, oh, well, then you need two. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and now that can be, that's overall, oh, I, well, I don't have any time. I'm just going to throw my hands up. And what you're saying is, hey, guess what? We all have 12 minutes a day. Yeah. Maybe you can't dedicate two hours right now. And if you can and you feel compelled to, wonderful. But if you're compelled to do it for 12 minutes a day, then you may experience some benefit from it. Uh, from it refocusing your attention, you might actually notice it in your everyday experience of life. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Amishi, I want to thank you for being here today. Yeah. It's um, this is a great conversation, man. Thank you so much. Oh, this is a lot of fun. I'm honored <laughs> to be here. I want to encourage folks to check out your book. It's called Peak Mind. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Is there anywhere else we should send folks to check you out? Yeah, they can check out what we're up to in the lab by just going to amishi.com. Okay. So A-M-I-S-H-I.com. We'll put a link to that as well. Awesome. We want to acknowledge you and, and thank you for being here today. Yeah. Thank you. And please keep doing what you're doing. It's it's great for the world. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Keep up the great work. <laughs> All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much, patrons. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it